We're so glad that you're here this morning, and uh, I noticed the, the flurries are, are flying, supposed to get maybe an inch or two of snow here today, but uh, it's always a good time for us to gather um, together to worship the Lord, to sing His praises, to hear from God's Word, and uh, to learn of Him, and to uh, understand who we are in light of who He is and what He has called us to do. And if you were here last week, you know that we began uh, a new sermon series in the book of John, the Gospel of John, and we had a great time looking at the first 18 verses, and as uh, I I prepared for for the message, I mean, there was a strong part of me that thought, oh no, uh, I want to take like a month to go through those 18 verses, but uh, we did it all in a day, and... um, it wasn't too long, was it? No comment. Okay. So, uh, but today we're going to continue. Uh, but just as a way of reminder, last week, what we really focused on was the fact that, that Jesus is the eternal word of God. He was with God in the beginning, and he was God. And we learned that in him was life. And the life was the light of men. But then verse 14 was the one that really hit home. And that was that the word that existed from the very beginning had become flesh and dwelt among us. And as John says, we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so um, keeping in mind John's purpose for the book that he wrote, which is found in chapter 20, that, that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So John continues um, to uh, give us more reason to believe that Jesus is the eternal word, God come in the flesh. And so that's where we're going to be going here this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father God, Lord, we thank you for this time together. Um, Lord, just what a privilege it is to be able to gather freely to worship you. Uh, without fear of persecution or retribution, Lord, that we can come, we can lift up holy hands to you, we can sing your praises, we can hear your word. And Father, then we can go out from this place and live as salt and light in the world as you've called us to do. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher and our guide here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? (laughs) This week, as I've been looking at this text, that question has just been reverberating in my mind. And you know, there's a lot of different ways of asking that, you know. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And... What came to my mind, silly as it was, was a movie that I could not place, but I remember that there was a character in the movie who asked the question something like this, like, who are you? Something like that. 
So I scoured the internet looking to see if I could figure it out. And what did my wandering eyes behold? <sighs> That's one of them. That's one of them. What I found out is, is that that question, who are you, may just be the most asked question in motion picture history. Because I found videos upon videos of clips of that question being asked by all sorts of people in, in all sorts of movies spanning decades. And I thought, I'm never going to find it. So if you, if you know, maybe, maybe that's it. But I remembered it, and I was just thinking, i got to find that movie. So I'm still in my quest. Um, but, but really, it's a good question to ask. Uh, and it's a good question to ask of ourselves uh, from time to time. And that question is really the subject of our text here this morning. Who is John? And more importantly, who is Jesus? So this morning, we're going to get a glimpse at the, the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. And what we find is that John humbly and boldly points us to Jesus as the only remedy for our sin. So this morning, I kind of divided the message into talking about uh, the messenger himself uh, and then his message or his testimony that he gives a little bit later. But for right now, I'd like us to look at the messenger. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over John chapter 1, verses 19 uh, through 27. That's where we're going to look first. Actually, we'll take the first uh, few verses through verse 23. No, I'm good. Thank you. So John 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So the Jews sent a group of priests in Levi, Levites to interrogate John, to determine his identity. And they asked him a series of questions here. The first was simply, who are you? In verse 19, to which he answers plainly, I am not the Christ. Interesting that the question was, who are you? And he says, I am not the Christ. That tells you something. Evidently, some of them had believed that John may have, in fact, been the Christ. Or at least, maybe John thought that he thought he was the Christ. In any event, that's what they're asking, and John understands, and so he answers plainly, I am not the Christ. Second question is found in verse 21. Are you Elijah? Well, that's an interesting question to ask. Are you Elijah? Why would they ask that? Well, they were both prophets. They both called people to repent. 
Let's see, Elijah hadn't died. The prophet Malachi said that God would send the prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord. So they began to wonder, might this be Elijah? And then probably the kicker was he kind of looked like them. You say, well, how do you know what they look like? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 1, we're told this about Elijah, that he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. I I hope he wore a little more than that. But um, he wore a belt of leather around his waist. And in Matthew chapter 3, we're told that now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather, leather belt around his waist. And his food was locust and wild honey. So you could see how maybe, possibly, John could have been Elijah. And of course, we've talked about this in previous sermons. But what was John's response? I am not. I'm not Elijah. So then in verse 21, they ask another question. Are you the prophet? Another interesting question. Notice that they did not say, are you a prophet? They kind of assumed that that was the case, especially in asking him if he was Elijah. But he says, are you the prophet? See, they had a specific prophet in mind. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses says this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. There's other references in the Old Testament to this, but but these individuals who asked this question didn't rightly understand this prophecy because the prophecy is a reference to the Messiah, And John had already said he was not the Christ. So why are you asking that question again in a different form? Clearly, they misunderstood. And John's answer, again, was simply no. So in verse 22, they ask, who are you then? What do you say about yourself? And this was John's response. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Here John is quoting Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. And in that particular context, the voice is calling to make a way for the exiles who were in bondage, who were carted off into captivity, to prepare a way for them to return home. And here... Just as God prepared the way for his people to return to Jerusalem after their captivity, John is preparing the way for the people to return to God. That's what John's ministry was all about. His role was that of a voice. To call people to repentance and to believe on Jesus who would come after him. And John called the people to turn from their sin and to receive Jesus as their God and Savior. Now, John demonstrates great humility here. I mean, you have to understand, he knew that he was being interrogated. And, and John responds so 
so uh, humbly. Um, I, I just, I'm amazed at his responses. And I kept thinking, how would I have responded to these questions uh, if they had come to me? And I, and I thought, you know, it'd probably be something like this, okay? You, you, you guys want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I am. I am a mighty prophet of God. I am a miracle baby. My birth was announced by an angel to my father before I, I was ever born, and, and I am God's right-hand man right now. And I have been commissioned and empowered to call you all to repent and to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. That's probably what I would have said. John didn't say that. That was not John's response. He, he, he simply responds with great humility, and he says, I'm a servant. I'm a voice. Really a nobody. He isn't looking for attention. Rather, he wants the spotlight to be on the one whose way he is preparing. John is secure in his identity. That's one of the most awesome blessings that any person can have is to be secure in who they are and whom God created them to be. There are so many people, including Christians, who really don't know who they are. And they search their entire life for significance. They try so many different ways to feel good about themselves. John didn't have to do that. John had nothing to prove. John knew who he was. He knew what he was called to do, and he embraced his purpose in life. And in verse 24, we learn that it was the Pharisees that sent these men to question Jesus. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing? In other words, if you're not you know, the prophet, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the Christ, if you're neither the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet, then why are you baptizing? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So these men ask one final question of John. Then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, Elijah, nor the prophets. Now, according to rabbinical teaching, baptism... Uh, next to sacrifice and circumcision, was absolutely necessary uh, to uh, become a Jewish proselyte. So baptism isn't new to the Christian church. And what it also tells us is that baptism, even in Judaism, was tied to the faith community. It wasn't a private event. It wasn't something that just anybody could do at any time or be baptized by anyone at any time. That's why they're seeking to find out by what authority do you do this? Well, John's authority came from God. And his baptizing was really an extension of his ministry. And in verses 26 and 27, if you look at it carefully, in essence, what John is saying is that, fellas, I'm not the guy that you should be talking to. 
There is one in your midst that you would do well to listen to whose shoes I'm not even worthy to take off his feet. I am just a witness. You should talk to him. So John deflects attention from himself, and he humbly and boldly points others to Jesus as the only remedy for their sin. So what I want us to do now is, is listen to John's message or his testimony about Jesus. It begins there in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So John gives this remarkable testimony, a remarkable statement here. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, before I unpack that, how did John recognize Jesus as the lamb? Because he admits he did not know him at first. Well, John learned who he was at Jesus' baptism. Verse 32, we read, And John bore witness... I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize, God, with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Wow. So that's how John learned who Jesus was. God revealed to him that the one on whom he would see the Holy Spirit descend and remain is the one who who would be before him, the Holy One of God, the Christ, the Messiah. And FYI, uh, just as a side note, make, you might want to make a note of this, that uh, John introduces the Holy Spirit here for the first time in verse 32. And in so doing, affirms the doctrine of the Trinity that we talked about last week. You see, the God, God the Father spoke to John. Jesus was being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. As a dove. Now, this is even clearer when you look at the other accounts, uh, the other gospels of Jesus' baptism, such as in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
So here you see, and last week we talked about those erroneous views of the Trinity. And one of them I said was that it's not that there was one God who shows up as the Father sometimes, sometimes as the Son, and sometimes as the Spirit, because very clearly here you see all three at the same time. You see Jesus in the water. You see the Holy Spirit descending upon him, and you hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. So now I want to go back to John's opening statement in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, interestingly enough, the Passover celebration was just days away as John is is speaking here. And every Jew would have understood the imagery of the lamb and the purpose for the lamb. Now, growing up uh, not being a Jew, I didn't really understand this. Even though I heard it every week, right before communion. Right, Paul? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Happy are those who are called to his supper. I remember hearing that over and over and over again. And, and I actually kind of looked forward to it because, you know, part of the tradition and the ritual, I just, I mean, I knew it's coming. Here he goes, behold the Lamb of God. Had no clue what it meant. Behold the Lamb of God. It, it, it's, what's this saying? What's it telling me? Is it, is it telling me that Jesus is meek and lowly? Is, 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 is that he's uh, gentle? Is um, I mean, what, 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 what lamb? I don't understand it. To understand what John meant when he said, behold the lamb of God, you have to go back almost 3,500 years to fully understand what he meant. By referring to the lamb of God, John is pointing back to the time when the nation of Israel was in Egypt. And they were in bondage there for 400 years. And God raised up a prophet, Moses, who would lead God's people out of bondage and eventually into the promised land. And so God sends Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. And you know how Pharaoh responds. Yeah, I'll do it, but then he doesn't do it. And so all these plagues are then sent upon the Egyptians, and it's bad. And every time you think he's going to relent and let the people go, he does it until finally, the final plague is when the Lord passed through Egypt. And I say the Lord passed through Egypt because growing up, I was always told it was the death angel. And it's not. It was the Lord himself who passed through Egypt. And and God said that as a final judgment that he was going to strike each household so that the firstborn child would die. Unless, unless that home took an unblemished, spotless lamb, killed it, and then took take the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lentils of the house and then have everybody from that family get inside so that when the Lord passed over that house, if there was blood 
the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house, God passed over them and death would not visit that household. But every household where there was no blood, where they didn't obey God's command to do what he said, the firstborn was stricken and died. And ever since then, the Jewish people celebrate the Passover. They celebrate that their deliverance out of Egypt by, it's a week-long celebration actually, but, but they, they in, in Jesus' day and in, after the, the Jews were able um, to be in Jerusalem, uh, families would travel from all over to come to Jerusalem. Jerusalem would just swell and, and they would sacrifice the lamb. Every family would bring a lamb to the temple to be sacrificed. So when Jesus, when John, excuse me, refers to Jesus as the lamb of God, this is the picture that he has in mind. And in saying it, he is saying several things about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is our sacrifice. It's important to also understand, though, that a lamb was not just sacrificed on the Passover, but every day in the temple, lambs were sacrificed. Twice a day, actually. Once in the morning, once in the evening. As a constant reminder of not only God's deliverance, but it was a constant reminder of their sin. You see, the animal needed to be sacrificed because of sin. You see, God is holy and righteous, and he must punish sin. But God, in his mercy, rather than punishing us as we deserved, came up with the sacrificial system and allowed for animals, and in this case, and particularly a lamb, to, to be sacrificed so as to illustrate the devastating cost of sin, but also to act as a covering for our sin. Because they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it on the seat of the Ark of the Covenant with the angels that were erected on the side of the Ark of the Covenant looking down so that it was a picture of God looking down upon the people and seeing the blood and withholding his judgment, postponing his judgment because the blood of the spotless, unblemished lamb covered our sin. And he did so until such time as a perfect sacrifice could be made that would not merely cover our sin, but take our sin away. And that's what he's alluding to here when he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't come to cover our sin. He came to remove it as far as the east is from the west. But Jesus is not only our sacrifice. Jesus is our substitute as I mentioned, each family was to provide a lamb to serve as a substitute for them. It stood in their place and suffered death in their place. 
But in this case, it's not the people who bring the lamb. It's God the Father who provides the lamb. His only son to take our place, to absorb the punishment that we deserved for our sins. And only a sinless savior could do that. It's only through his substitutionary death on the cross that our sins are taken away. So Jesus is both our sacrifice and our substitution. But Jesus is also our our satisfaction. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, God can't turn a blind eye to sin. He is infinitely holy and righteous and just and must punish sin. And Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was both God and man. And as we've talked about it before, as man, he could die. As God, his sacrifice would have infinite value. And Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree. And as a result, sin was dealt with. Justice was served. God poured out his wrath on his only son so that he would not have to pour out his wrath on us. And just as as a side note, an excursus here, I run into this a lot with people. I know sometimes it's difficult for us to forgive. People hurt us in a lot of different ways. We're we're not God. We can't forget the wrongs that have been done to us, but we are called to forgive. And, And one of the things that has been helpful to me is to understand that Even when a person comes to faith in Christ, it doesn't erase a wrong that may have been done to me. But I don't have to seek justice anymore for that wrong. I don't have to, in a sense, make other people suffer for those things. The reason why is is because justice has already been served. That, that, that person did not get off scot-free, although we may think they have. But rather than inflicting judgment and wrath upon them, the judgment and wrath that, that I could have dealt it out, it pales in significance to the judgment and wrath that God deals and, and melts out to people. And God poured out his wrath, not just on that sin or that sinner, but all sin and all sinners. And he did so in the person of Jesus Christ, his only son. Sin was dealt with. It was paid for at the cross. And that frees us up to be able to forgive even as God has forgiven us. This is why we call the gospel good news. Though we have to repent of our sins, we don't have to pay for our sins. Jesus paid for our sins. Jesus died to take away our sins. Um, As the hymn says, Jesus paid it all. 
All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Notice, he didn't pay some of it. He didn't pay most of it. Jesus paid it all. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world and to completely satisfy the justice of God. His blood doesn't merely cover our sins. It washed them away. And because of what Jesus has done for us, we have been set free from sin. And we are no longer its slave. And so lastly, and perhaps most as a summary, Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is not just a lamb of God. He's the lamb of God. You know, in the Old Testament... They had to sacrifice lambs over and over and over and over because it could never take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs could never take away sins. It merely covered it. But Jesus is the lamb. And through his sacrifice that was made once and for all, there is no more need for another sacrifice because Jesus paid it all. He's the only way to the Father. As Luke says in Acts chapter 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus is our only hope. He is our remedy for sin. And Peter tells us, in his uh, epistle in chapter 1, verse 19, that, that we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Do you believe? Have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Now, that's just, that's just not just a hymn. That's just not some religious mumbo-jumbo. That's the word of God. It's the very word of God. Has Christ's blood cleansed you of your sin? If not, or if you're unsure, I urge you, be sure. Don't don't leave this place. Don't turn off the TV until you know for sure that Christ's blood has cleansed you of your sin, that you are a child of God. And again, God already knows your spiritual condition. He's waiting for you to admit it. And he's waiting for you to turn to him and embrace him as your God and Savior. For those of you who believe, John the Baptist knew who he was. Who are you? If people came and interrogated you, how would you respond? John said he was a voice one sent to prepare the way of the Lord. He was a witness, and he humbly 
and boldly pointed others to Jesus as the only remedy for their sin. Again, I ask, who are you? Jesus said to his disciples, and by extension to us, you shall be my witnesses. We may not have heard Jesus preach. We may not have seen his miracles, but we too are called to be his witnesses. We are to use our voices to tell other people about Jesus and what he has done for us, that he is the only remedy for their sins. So how are you doing at that? Maybe you need some help. Well, I would start first by making sure you're saved. Make sure you belong to Christ. And then take advantage of, of all the, the growth opportunities that are before you, whether it be coming on a Sunday morning to worship and hearing the word, being a part of a life group, being in a D group, our men's and women's ministry, whatever way that you can connect with growth opportunities, do it. Use the resources that are available to you. Last year, we had the entire church kind of work through developing their testimony. We still have those resources available. There are tracks available. There are books. There is a bazillion resources online. You got to be careful what you buy, but there's a bunch of resources available to help you become a better witness. Ask God to give you opportunities to point others to Jesus. And I'll tell you, he'll answer that prayer. If you're earnest and if you're willing and ready for God to use you. And I would say also, take advantage of your elders. Use us, come to us, talk to us. We would love to sit down and have a conversation with you to help you become a better witness for Christ and to borrow a slogan from a shoe company. Just do it. Just do it. You know, it's really not that difficult when you, when you stop to think about it. Scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's coming out of your mouth tells you what's in your heart. If you love Jesus, if you're grateful for what he has done for you, it's going to naturally come out. It may not be eloquent, but that's okay. Because nobody has ever been saved by somebody's eloquence. It's the Spirit of God who works to remove the veil and to help people to see Jesus for who he truly is and their need for him. So again, I ask, Who are you? Who am I? I hope our answer would all be, I am a child of God. I am a disciple of Christ. And I am a faithful witness of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for this morning, for the opportunity, Lord, to open your word yet once again. Oh, it is so rich. And Lord, we are just scratching the surface here. Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger for your word that would never cease. That we would just not only delight to be in your word, but if we ever miss a day, miss an opportunity, Lord, that we would, we would be undone. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. Thank you. 
for sending John to pave the way. Thank you for sending Jesus, who is our salvation, our substitute, our satisfaction, and our salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.